everybody. This is Jean Bartow with the Custer's Luck Radio Show, and I'm going to share with you a show that I did back in late 2017, and it will be going forward a number of years to the early 20th century. Enjoy. And I will add that the information I'm getting for this first sector is from firstworldwar.com. You are standing up to your knees in the slime of a waterlogged trench. It is the evening of 24 December 1914, and you are on the dreaded Western Front. Stooped over, you wade across to the firing step and take over the watch. Having exchanged pleasantries, your bleary-eyed and mud-spattered colleague shuffles off toward his dugout. Despite the horrors and the hardships, your morale is high, and you believe that in the new year, the nation's army marched towards a glorious victory. But for now, you stamp your feet in a vain attempt to keep warm. All is quiet when jovial voices call out from both friendly and enemy trenches. Then the men from both sides start singing carols and songs. Next call, come, request not to fire. And soon the unthinkable happens you start to see the shadowy shapes of soldiers gathering together in no man's land, laughing, joking, and sharing gifts. Many have exchanged cigarettes, the lit ends of which burn brightly in the inky darkness. Plucking up your courage, you haul yourself up and out of the trench and walk toward the foe. The meeting of enemies as friends in no man's land was experienced by hundreds if not thousands of men on the Western Front during Christmas 1914. Today, 93 years later after it occurred, the event is seen as a shining episode of sanity from, from among the bloody chapters of World War I, a spontaneous effort by the lower ranks to create a peace that could have blossomed were it not for the interference of generals and politicians. The reality of the Christmas truce, however, is a slightly less romantic and a more down-to-earth story. It was an organic affair that in some spots hardly registered a mention, and in others left a profound impact upon those who took part. Many accounts were rushed, confused, or contradictory. Others, written long after the event, are weighed down by hindsight. These difficulties aside, the true story is still striking precisely because of its ragtag nature. It is more human and therefore all the more potent. Months beforehand, millions of servicemen, reservists, and volunteers from all over the continent had rushed enthusiastically to the banners of war. The atmosphere was one of holiday rather than conflict. But it was not long before the jovial facade was torn away. Armies equipped with repeating rifles, machine guns, and a vast array of artillery tore chunks out of each other, and thousands and thousands of, of, of men perished. To protect against the threat of this vast firepower, the soldiers were ordered to dig in and prepare for next year's offensives, which most men believed would break the deadlock and deliver victory. 
The early trenches were often hasty creations and poorly constructed. If the trench was badly sighted, it could become a sniping hotspot. In bad weather, the winter of 1914 was a dire one. The positions could flood and fall in. Soldiers, unequipped to face the rigors of the cold and rain, found themselves wallowing in a freezing mire of mud and the decaying bodies of the fallen. The man at the front could not help but have a degree of sympathy for his opponents who were having just a miserable time as they were. Another factor that broke down the animosity between the opposing armies were the surroundings. In 1914, the men at the front could still see the vestiges of civilization. Villages, although badly smashed up, were still standing. Fields, although pitted with shell holes, had not been turned into money lunarscapes. Thus, the other world, the civilian world, and the social mores and manners that went into it were still present at the front. Also lacking was the pain, misery, and hatred that years of bloody war built up. Then there was the desire on all sides to see the enemy up close. Was he really as bad as the politicians, papers, and priests were saying? It was a combination of these factors and many more minor ones that made the Christmas truce of 1914 possible. On the eve of the truce, the British Army, still a relatively small presence on the Western Front, was manning a stretch of the line running south from the infamous Ypres salient for 27 miles to the La Basse Canal. Along the front, the enemy was sometimes no more than 70, 50, or even 30 yards away. Both Tommy and Fritz could quite easily hurl greetings and insults to one another, and importantly, come to tacit agreements not to fire. Incidents of temporary truces and outright fraternization were more common at this stage of the war than many people today realize. Even units that had just taken part in a series of futile and costly assaults were still willing to talk and come to arrangements with their opponents. As Christmas approached, the festive mood and the desire for a lull in the fighting increased as parcels packed with good goodies from home started to arrive. On top of this came gifts, care of the state. Tommy received plum puddings and Christmas Princess Mary boxes, a metal case engraved with an outline of George V's daughter and filled with chocolates and butterscotch, cigarettes and tobacco, a picture card of Princess Mary, and a facsimile of George V's greeting to the troops, which said, may God protect you and bring you safe home. Not to be undone, Fritz received a, pre a present from the Kaiser, the Kaiserlich, a large Meerschaum pipe for the troops and a box of cigars for NCOs and officers. Towns, villages, and cities, and numerous support associations on both sides also flooded the front with gifts of food, warm clothes, and letters, letters of thanks. The Belgians and French also received goods, although not in such an organized fashion as the British or Germans. For these nations, the Christmas of 1914 was tinged with sadness. Their countries were occupied. It is no wonder that the truce, although, although it sprung up in some spots on French and Belgian lines, 
never really caught hold as it did in the British sector. With their morale boosted by messages of thanks and their bellies fuller than normal, and with still so much Christmas booty to hand, the season of goodwill entered the trenches. A British Daily Telegraph correspondent wrote that on one part of the line, the Germans had managed to slip a chocolate cake into the British trenches. Amazingly, it was accompanied with a message asking for a ceasefire later that evening so that they could celebrate the festive season and their captain's birthday. They proposed a concert at 7.30 p.m. when candles, the British were told, would be placed on the parapets of their trenches. The British accepted the invitation and offered some tobacco as a return present. That evening, at the stated time, German heads suddenly popped up and started to sing. Each number ended with a round of applause from both sides. The Germans then asked the British to join in. At this point, one very mean-spirited Tommy shouted, We'd rather die than sing German. To which a German joked aloud, It would kill us if you did. And all this was happening December 24th in the evening. December 24th was a good day weather-wise. The rain had given way to clear skies. On many stretches of the front, the crack of rifles and the dull thud of shells plowing into the ground continued, but at a far lighter level than normal. In other sectors, there was an unnerving silence that was broken by the singing and shouting drifting over in the main from the German trenches. Along many parts of the line, the truce was spurred on with the arrival in the German trenches of miniature Christmas trees, Tannenbaum. The sight of these small pines, decorated with candles and strung along the German parapets, captured the Tommy's imagination, as well as the men of the Indian Corps, who were reminded of the sacred Hindu festival of light. It was the perfect excuse for the opponents to start, start shouting to one another, to start singing, and in some areas to pluck up the courage to meet one another in no man's land. By now, the British High Command, comfortably entrenched in a luxurious chateau 27 miles behind the front, was beginning to hear of the fraternization. Stern orders were issued by the commander of the British Expeditionary Force, Sir John French, against such behavior. Other brass hats, as the Tommies nicknamed their high-ranking officers and generals, also made grave pronouncements on the dangers and consequences of parlaying with the Germans. However, there were many high-ranking officers who took, this, took a surprisingly relaxed view of the situation. If anything, they believed it would at least offer their men an opportunity to strengthen their trenches. This mixed stance meant that very few officers and men involved in the Christmas truce were disciplined. Interestingly, the German high command's ambivalent attitude toward the truce mirrored that of the British. They began quietly, but once the sun was up, the fraternization began. Again, songs were sung and rations thrown to one another. It was not long before troops and officers started to take matters into their own hands and ventured forth. No man's land became something of a playground. Men exchanged gifts and buttons. 
In one or two places, soldiers who had been barbers in civilian times gave free haircuts. One German, a juggler, and a showman gave an impromptu and given the circumstances somewhat surreal performance of his routine in the center of no man's land. Captain Sir Edward Hulse of the Scots Guard, in his famous account, remembered the approach of four unarmed Germans at 8.30 a.m. He went out to meet them with one of his ensigns. Your spokesman, Hulsey wrote, started off by saying that he thought it only right to come over and wish us a happy Christmas and trusted us implicitly to keep the truce. He came from Suffolk when he had left his best girl and a three-and-a-half horsepower motorbike. Having raced off to file a report at headquarters, Hulse returned at 10 o'clock to find crowds of British soldiers and Germans out together, chanting and larking about in no man's land in direct contradiction to his orders. Not that Hulse seemed to care about the fraternization in itself. The need to be seen to follow orders was his concern. Thus, he sought out a German officer and arranged for both sides to return to their lines. While this was going on, he still managed to keep his ears and eyes open to the fantastic events that were unfolding. And he continues in his letter and diary. Scots and Huns were fraternizing in the most genuine possible manner. Every sort of souvenir was exchanged, addresses given and received, photos of of families shown, etc. One of our fellows offered a German a cigarette. The German said, Virginian? Our fellow said, aye, straight cut. The German said, no thanks, I only smelled Turkish. It gave us all a good laugh. Hulse's account was in part a letter to his mother, who in turn sent it on to the newspapers for publication, as was the custom of the time. Tragically, Hulse was killed in March 1915. On many parts of the line, the Christmas Day truce, was initiated through sadder means. Both sides saw the lull as a chance to get into no man's land and sink out the bodies of their compatriots and give them a decent burial. Once this was done, the opponents would inevitably begin talking to one another. The 6th Gordon Highlanders, for example, organized a burial truce with the enemy. After the gruesome task of laying friends and comrades to rest was complete, the fraternization began. With a truce in full swing up and down the line, there were a number of recorded games of soccer, although these were really just kickabouts rather than a structured match. On January 1, 1915, the London Times published a letter from a major in the medical corps reporting that in his sector, the British played a game against the Germans opposite and were beaten 3-2. to two. Kurt Zemish of the 134 Saxons recorded in his diary, the English brought a soccer ball from the trenches and pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. This Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. The truce lasted all day. In places, it ended that night. 
but on other sections of the line held over into Boxing Day, December 26th, and in some areas a few days more. In fact, there were parts of the front where the absence of aggressive behavior was conspicuous well into 1915. Captain J.C. Dunn, the medical officer in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, whose unit had fraternized and received two barrels of beer from the Saxon troops opposite, recorded how hostilities restarted on his section of the front. Dunn wrote, At 8.30 a.m., I fired three shots in the air and put up a flag with Merry Christmas on it, and I climbed on the parapet. He, the Germans, put up a sheet with thank you on it and the German captain appeared on the parapet. We both bowed and saluted and got down into our respective trenches and he fired two shots in the air and the war was on again. The war was was indeed on again for the truce had no hope of being maintained. Despite being wildly reported in Britain and to a lesser extent in Germany, the troops and the populations of both countries were still keen to prosecute the conflict. Today, pragmatists read the truce as nothing but more than a blip, a temporary lull induced by the season of goodwill but willingly exploited by both sides to better their defenses and eye out one another's positions. Romantics assert that the truce was an effort by normal men to bring about an end to their slaughter. In the public's mind, the facts have been irrevocably mythologized, and perhaps this is the most important legacy of the Christmas truce today. In our age of uncertainty, it is comforting to believe, regardless of the real reasoning and motives, the soldiers and officers told to hate, loathe, and kill could still lower their guns and extend the hand of goodwill, peace, love, and Christmas cheer. And this is Jean Bartow with the Custer's Luck Radio Show. I'm going to take a short break and come back and continue with the show for a few more minutes. I'll be right back. This is Jean Barta with the Custer's Luck Radio Show, and it is Boxing Day, December 26, 2017, and I'm continuing with my show about the Christmas truce in December 1914, which took place on the Western Front during World War I. What I'm going to now is an I Wonder webpage from BBC. This particular site takes a little more of a jaundiced or realistic view of the events. They said, the motivations for the truth were complex, practical as much as magical, and this wasn't the first unofficial truth to take place. Instead, 
it was one of the last. This narrative continues. By November 1914, it had become clear that the war was not going to be over quickly. As autumn turned to winter, the last of Britain's professional soldiers, exhausted after months of vicious fighting, settled into the routine of life in the trenches of northern France. They naturally began to think of enemy soldiers, sometimes a few feet away, doing the same. As a result of this proximity, a live-and-let-live attitude developed in certain areas of the trench system. As I discussed earlier in the, other, in the early part of the show, reciprocal periods of quiet time emerged when soldiers tacitly agreed not to shoot at each other. Between battles and out of boredom, soldiers began to barter, even barter for cigarettes between opposite sides. Informer tr- informal truces were also agreed on and used as an opportunity to recover wounded soldiers, bury the dead, and used as an opportunity to uh, check out the trenches. In many ways, for the last of the professional soldiers, this was all part of the etiquette of war. However, the high command feared the longer-term impact of such activity and issued strict orders that officers should be vigilant against this kind of contact regarding it as treason. Yet, this early on in the war and across such a large front, these truces were simply a practicality, and certainly, according to this blog and this page, not certainly not unique to Christmas. This section next is presents, kickabouts, and funerals. Along parts of the front, some men responded to the events of Christmas Eve by tentatively emerging from their trenches into no man's land on Christmas Day. Where it happened, enemy soldiers did indeed meet and spend Christmas together. Spontaneously, they exchanged gifts and took photos. But, according to this blog page, it was also, importantly, an opportunity to leave the damp of the trenches and tend to the dead and wounded of no man's land. There wasn't a single organized football match between the German and British sides. There may have been small-scale kickabouts, but these were just one of many different activities men took the time to enjoy. Meanwhile, in other places along the front, like he's there, bloody battles took place over the Christmas period, and those that dared to come above the parapet were met, not by gifts, but gunfire. Belgian, Indian, and French troops who witnessed episodes of fraternization were best puzzled and at worst very angry. The British troops were being friendly toward the Germans. This next section talks about the general's reactions. High command was angry, and this is British. They feared that men would now question the war and even mutiny as a result of fraternizing with the enemy that they were meant to defeat. Strict orders were issued to end such activity with harsh punishment for any man caught refusing to fight. And now, the next thing that happens in January 1915. The London Rifle Brigade's War Diary for 2 January 1915 recorded that informal truces with the enemy were to cease, and any officer or non-commissioned officer found to have initiated one would be tried by court-martial. As the war continued, 
brutal developments on the battlefield changed the character of the war later on in 1915. The enemy was further demonized and made even less likely. Small truces of 1914 never happened again. Yet, despite the best efforts of the authorities, the story was out there, in the media and in the popular imagination, a story that has been retold and reshaped many times in the decades that followed. And this is Jean Bartow with the Custer's Luck Radio Show, and thank you for listening today. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you had a good Christmas holiday and enjoy the slower time between Christmas and New Year's. Have a good evening. Stille Nacht, heilige Nacht, alles kam, einen weit, nur nach Traut, hoch heiligen Paul, Christ in thy good.